Welcome to the newest episode of the Lebanese Physicians Podcast. And today we will be talking about women in medicine, particularly in Lebanon, but also all over challenges and future, future outlook. And we have two very special guests with us today, Dr. Evelyn Hatti, who is currently the chairperson of the Department of Emergency Medicine at the American University of Beirut Medical Center. And uh, she's, uh, she's a leader in emergency medicine in Lebanon and internationally. And uh, she graduated uh, her emergency medicine residency in, at uh, Johns Hopkins University, uh, worked for a couple of years in Baltimore, and then moved to Lebanon about uh, 11 years ago. And uh, our other guest, Dr. Uh, Zakia Dimasi, who uh, did her uh, pediatric and adolescent uh, residency at the American University of Europe Medical Center, and then she got into uh, medical education, where she has worked uh, significantly in simulation-based uh, education and, and in multiple initiatives for education medical students at the American University of Beirut Medical Center, and currently she's at uh, St. George University Hospital. Uh, welcome, uh, Zakia. Welcome, uh, Evelyn. Happy to be here. Thank you, Khalil. Thanks. thanks. Yes, I'm going to start first by asking maybe uh, both of you, but we'll start with Zakia. So do you, do you know what the current makeup of uh, medical students at AUB is uh, in terms of uh, females versus males and, and also of other medical schools in, in Lebanon? In terms of AUB, I know for uh, the last uh, statistics of the past few years, so it was about 50-50, which is a, a progress of, uh, regarding, I mean, in comparison to the previous years, whereby the number of male students exceeded more, even more than that, the number of female students. But I don't know about the past couple of years. Uh, I heard that there were more now more female students, even more than male students, but I'm not sure I don't have the numbers. As for other universities, I don't have numbers uh, on that. I, we don't have, I mean, we don't have statistics, uh, maybe uh, uh, not officially, so maybe internally it's known. I have an idea of AUB because we finished a study a couple of years ago looking at gender differences and trends at, uh, at the American University of Beirut, but I don't, we never saw anything related to national data. In the past 50 years, we've gone from 12% uh, women students to now 50-50%, and at the level of faculty, um, in 92, 19% of the faculty were women, and then uh, more recently, we're up to 34%. So okay. definitely closing the gender gap at the level of medical school, but at the level of faculty, we're still we're still behind and still behind, especially at the level of ranks. So as you go up progressively in terms of uh, ranks, that gender gap widens further. All right. So, so that's, it's good that at least from a medical school perspective, it is catching up now. And I think it's catching up it's similar to the rest of the world, too, where this is catching up and, and the rest of the world at the same time. But do you know why, in terms of rank, you see a, a bigger gender gap uh, in the higher ranks? Why is that? So I think there are a couple contributors. I think uh, um, one, looking at our institution, and actually I was on a gender task force where we looked at AUB data in general, not just faculty of medicine. So many more women are appointed at the instructor level. So they start off behind compared to males. Um, certainly not, we didn't dissect down to what were the CVs and the, the CVs reflect um, or justify that discrepancy. Uh, that's one. And then the second one is if you look at global data, um, even when you have closed the gap at medical school, 
the gap at the leadership level and at the faculty level persists. And there are many theories to that, whether it's the glass ceiling. Um, what we were looking at in my study is actually something, a different type of uh, advancement drawback for women, which is called the domestic tethers. Um, so for women, we go into the workforce at the same time when lots of childcare responsibilities, I see your daughter in the background, <laughs> uh, converges with the peak of childcare responsibilities. And those get generally lots of data on how those are shouldered more heavily by women. So the domestic tethers theory is about how that inequity of home actually pulls women back in terms of advancement at the professional level as well. So this is kind of a global phenomenon that even when you close the gender gap at medical schools, it persists at the faculty level and then at a leadership level. Right. And, and some people say also part, part of it too is negotiating. Like sometimes men tend to negotiate more aggressively than women and women tend to accept uh, a lower pay or a uh, lower uh, place on the ladder than, than men. Yes, uh, certainly. Certainly. I mean, that, that plays a part of it. So also the, the networking disadvantages uh, also. So in, in, inside information is less accessible to women about what the norms are in terms of negotiating and what the norms are in terms of, is this an acceptable rank to come into and with my salary, uh, with my CV? So I think lots of factors play into that. Right. These are all interesting, interesting factors. So I'm going to ask both of you now, I'm going to start with Dr. DiMassi. So you, you both reached, I think, more advanced positions in your jobs uh, in, in Lebanon. And uh, so, so Zakia, so did you feel that there were any, what were the challenges that you faced uh, reaching your position? Um, well, first off, I'm, I'm sure my narrative is going to be very different from that of Dr. Hetti's. Dr. Hetti is in emergency medicine, which is a much tougher place to be for a woman than medical education and education in general. So uh, my experience is different, but it's not free of challenges, definitely. So as Dr. Hetty has already mentioned, when you go up high, high up in rank and in uh, administrative positions and leadership positions, you rarely find proper representation of women, regardless of their, I'm not gonna say regardless, but probably in spite of their qualifications, because um, the rate at which they progress is slowed down either by you know, family engagements or sometimes because may, male counterparts or peers are given priority for whatever reason. And again, also uh, uh, adding to what Dr. Hattie has also described about the negotiation for promotion, not just only an increase in pay, women, and I've read that somewhere, I think it was in uh, HBR, if I'm not mistaken, this article was uh, uh, published two years back and they were giving tips to women on how to negotiate without sounding too aggressive because usually when a woman wants to negotiate, she comes, she comes across or is perceived as aggressive as opposed to if a man does the same, he's perceived as courageous and uh, you know, forward going and you know, just having ambition. So all of these elements, you get sometimes stuck in a certain function that is given to you although you have potential to tap into something more. And this really makes you get, you know, reach some level of stagnation at some point. And this is a personal experience of mine. Uh, but then again, I was speaking medical education, which is a very small and, uh, you know, slowly progressing field. So yeah, it took me maybe longer than I should have had I been somewhere else maybe to reach where I am today. So yeah, that's my experience. 
And uh, Dr. Hatik, I'm sure you've, you've faced challenges uh, reaching your position. I never really intended to go into leadership. So I have to say that, yes, there are many challenges, but I also got pushed pretty, I got a lot of support along the way um, and actually encouraged beyond my comfort level to go into positions that I wasn't really intending to, to take on. Uh, so I came in as an instructor to AUB. I wasn't really intending on an academic career, but when we moved to Lebanon, that was the career option that I had. And then from there, I um, ended up developing the group practice structure for our emergency department that really helped improve the finances that led me into the interim uh, chair position that I didn't want to take, but I got really encouraged and supported to take it. So I do feel like I have to say and know the, that um, in terms of advancement, I felt that I was, I ended up with opportunities to advance very quickly and early in my career that because of very actually strong, encouraging male mentors along the way. But certainly there are uh, challenges that I face. Zakia was talking about the, the labeling, I think that happens to women who are vocal. This is very common. Uh, I saw it to a lot of my colleagues as well, female colleagues who are firm and vocal in their opinion, they get labeled as aggressive and that, that works really heavily against them for, for advancement opportunities oftentimes. So certainly I think those are, those are the main challenges. And I think one of the main challenges for me was getting past my own uh, discomfort level with, with taking on bigger and uh, more challenging positions, I have to say. Uh, and the self-imposed limitations that, of development that I also put on myself early on in my career, not going to conferences, not networking, not all of those, I had to learn that, no, these are important and necessary things that you have to prioritize, even if it's at the cost of some uh, family time. And then, I mean, my question that I'm going to start with Dr. Hetty now is, once you became a leader in your position uh, or the chairman, so did you feel that... Uh, when you're in meetings and stuff like that, do you have equal uh, say in, in, in important issues that say that happen at the, at the medical center? Or do you feel sometimes that you have to, to, to work harder to make yourself heard? I think you have to learn to elbow your way into conversations. So, and, and I read a lot of books. I, I uh, took a lot of uh, development. Uh, I went to a lot of development conferences to figure out how to do that because certainly there is that very common problem of women in, uh, in, on the table acting in a way that they don't get as much of a voice. So waiting for our turn. We, we raise our hand and wait for our turn. And as we're waiting patiently, other people are just jumping in. So how do, you, how do you, who accepts or works by that norm where others aren't working by that norm, how do you get your voice in? Um, I've seen many female, I worked, I was on the Senate as well, and the women senators would be holding, raising their hands and bypassed over and over again. And sometimes it takes someone else saying she's had her hand up. They're kind of invisible. They're invisible to the, 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 the people sharing the, the conversations. So sometimes it takes another colleague to say, hey, her hand has been up for the past 10 minutes. It's her turn. So you have to learn to elbow your way into those conversations. And you have to also recognizing that they happen. You have to help your peers, other women peers, 
find their voice within that conversation. So it does happen and recognizing that there's an issue and then finding the ways to do it in a respectable way is something that you have to learn. And uh, Dr. Dimassi, did, did you have the same issues too? Uh, probably uh, not all the time, but it, it, uh, I've seen it happen. And uh, here I'd like to add something that at some point you feel that because of the repetitive frustration associated with you not being heard, uh, some women tend to develop an overcompensation or overcorrection, so they become unconsciously aggressive. So be it an exaggerated perception by others as being aggressive or being an actual, be it an actual problem because of the lack of knowledge or lack of skill on how to, as just uh, Dr. Hetty mentioned, to elbow your way into the conversation, eventually something goes off. Now, when you have a wise uh, leadership, be it led by men or women, uh, they make sure that everybody is heard, everybody is given a turn, and they also like to engage the younger uh, voices, the newer members to see, you know, the fresh blood and what this fresh blood is bringing uh, to the table. So I had that experience, luckily, in AUB with the medical education leadership. They were like that, and that really boosted my confidence. Yeah, and I think what, what Dr. Hattie mentioned is, is happening even now with the, with the, when, when the pandemic hit and there were virtual meetings, you can always see it when uh, you're in a big meeting and then somebody raises their hand and other people are just budging in and talking and then you, you don't get to them until like somebody notices at the end, oh, she, she raised her hand, but you haven't given her a chance to speak yet. So that's, that's one of the things that happens. And then my other question for you now that a lot of medical students or a lot of students, uh, are, uh, a lot of female students are going into medicine. So what is your advice for them uh, as they start applying for uh, residencies and subsequently start applying for jobs afterwards? I'll start with Dr. Hattie uh, first. I, advice uh, about as they start applying for jobs, I think certainly follow their passion in terms of what they want to do. I think uh, not necessarily being sticking to the, the traditional specialties or hesitating from going into the non-traditional specialties just because of the, the, the gender norms. Uh, and certainly, at least at AUB, women continue to go into the more female-friendly uh, specialties. 92% of the residents who go into surgery are male still till today in, uh, at AUBMC. Um, so that's one. The other one is that don't forego development opportunities, that there are some things that are outside of our comfort zones, I think more so as women, because those networks haven't been well developed in terms of mentorship, going to conferences, developing those relationships, whether it's with women or, or men mentors. I think those are really important. And I think a lot of us end up foregoing them when life converges, personal and professional life uh, overwhelm happens. And then the other one that I think is super important that it took me a while to figure out is if there's no equity at home, it's hard to have equity in the professional workplace. And by that, I mean, again, childcare is a shared responsibility. There are two parents in the house and having those negotiations early on uh, and discussions early on are very important for advancement in the workplace. Yeah, but this is a very important point that, that you make because uh, there has to be equity. If not, then sometimes the woman shoulders a bigger portion of the responsibility and that would affect uh, how much she can advance at her workplace. And uh, Dr. Massey, what's your advice? 
Actually, uh, uh, Dr. Hetty covered it very beautifully. I mean, these are the really ma main points and I cannot stress enough the role of mentorship, be it from either genders, men or women, uh, and having multiple mentors. So the, the mentor in the specialty of choice that you'd like to have, a mentor who has reached a level of um, leadership that you aspire to become at some point, a mentor for research. So it's not only one person and they can be within uh, your place of, you know, where you're working or even international ones. You can reach out to people on social media. A lot of them are quite responsive, especially, you know, women in medicine who care to, to feed forward for other women to uh, advance in their careers. So I think this is, um, this is something that myself, it took me, it took me time to uh, actually engage in properly and to accept the fact that really this journey is something that you need quite a bit of support and networking and it's okay to reach out. There's not, it's not a sign of, oh, I can't do it my, myself. No, it's a sign of knowing that this uh, skill for me in order to develop it and in order to get where I want, I would need the support and of people around me who have already made it uh, in the field, so yeah. Uh, and then uh, another question is, when, when the medical students at AUB or other universities that are graduating, do you feel that a lot of them are emigrating to do their training outside or are a lot of them staying uh, in Lebanon to do their training? No, actually, I think uh, a higher percentage, at least knowing from the AUB figures, uh, are matching abroad, uh, specifically in the U.S. And with the current situation being what it is, uh, the chances for them having not only training, I mean, training is just one aspect of their lives, having a stable life whereby they can, you know, work at the hospital with a proper patient load, with the adequate number of faculty to supervise them, with the uh, having, uh, you know, the other elements of the healthcare, you know, nursing, social workers, and a, a proper uh, healthcare sector on by, by and large, these are becoming more and more difficult to be available in the first place. So more and more people are planning to leave because of the lack of, uh, of all these elements that I've just mentioned. Now, the trend has become even more, even prior to the crisis that Lebanon has been going through for the past couple of years, because uh, solely because um, the importance of the board certificate and board certification has become even more evident uh, for students. And mind you, this may be a, quite a bit of a challenge for some, for, for some uh, students who come from a lower socioeconomic status, because matching into the U.S. residency programs is a path that is not only long and requires a lot of hard work, but it requires quite a bit of financing. So although people are, are aspiring to leave, the socioeconomic conditions are not always in their favor. So it depends. Yeah, I think the brain drain for, not just at the level of trainees, but at the level of all the healthcare sector, human capital is a huge problem. Now, uh, we are having a hard time holding on to faculty, holding on to nurses. Um, we started a residency program in 2012 to create a pipeline of emergency medicine specialists. Our graduates are all taking on positions outside. So that pipeline has ended up meeting uh, the needs of, of uh, communities outside of Lebanon, unfortunately. Uh, it's a big challenge. And I think it is the biggest threat to the healthcare sector today. Yeah, I think, I mean, you, you've done uh, you've done a good job, I think, uh, promoting emergency medicine uh, for the medical students in Lebanon. You see a lot of them trying to get into emergency medicine residency in the U.S. And in fact, I did a podcast with uh, Leah Mjaz and Ela Usta, 
a couple of months ago, and they were very excited to go into it. I think a lot of them initially wanted to go into it too, because they know potentially they have a pathway of coming back to Lebanon and potentially working at the AUB, which, which at this point, I think is, is not as evident anymore. So, so my uh, question for you now is what do you think, what does the future hold for, uh, for medicine as, in Lebanon and specifically for women in medicine in Lebanon over, over the next four or five years? I think it's going to be challenging for women and men. I think for any health care worker who chooses to stay, it's a very challenging environment. As uh, Dr. Dimassi was saying, and your support services or your support personnel is all uh, leaving as well, from nursing to uh, specialized skill sets, you're losing all of those. So the quality standard that you're comfortable with is is breaking down. Uh, That's one. The finances are certainly another one. And the third one is the medical legal environment, which has also changed. Uh, There was a recent lawsuit and verdict that came out that basically held a pediatrician accountable for the complications of the disease as opposed to the decision making. And that today is very scary. And another reason that many physicians are choosing uh, or tipping the decision for many um, physicians to actually leave as well. So you're, you don't feel secure, left from the financial standpoint, left from the uh, safety quality standard that you're comfortable providing to your, to your patient, left from the medical legal environment and left from the security, no, from the security environment where um, assault and uh, battery of, of healthcare workers is, happens on a regular basis and with a no clear solution in sight. So I know I just painted a really morbid picture. I think the next couple of years are gonna be challenging. On the other hand, I think the one thing that I feel I, that has kept me at least so far hanging on to the promise of, of, uh, of serving the community in Lebanon is that anybody, the teams in Lebanon are teams with so much sense of purpose. Um, And it's a very fulfilling environment when there is a direction, when there is a strategy, and when there is the will to actually improve things. The people who come back and the people who stay are people with so much energy, so much purpose, and so much um, uh, eagerness to improve that in a way that I I didn't see or experience elsewhere. So we're still hanging on to that promise. Right. Yeah, and I agree. I think you feel that you can make a bigger, a much bigger impact and uh, you have your own, I mean, you can work hard on it and make the impact as opposed to when you work outside, you're part of a big corporation and cannot make the same impact that you can make in, in Lebanon. So Dr. DiMassi, what do you think the future holds? Um, I'm going to speak from a medical education perspective. So we have to, we do have a lot of concerns because of the how the landscape has been uh, responding to uh, the stressors imposed on it. Uh, But for now, I mean, uh, we are still at the place where uh, uh, it's not completely dissolved. Then again, there are areas for opportunities for the uh, medical students and resident trainees. So now I think it's the the golden uh, opportunity to send them out into uh, community centers, into primary healthcare centers, to uh, engage them more in these uh, centers uh, as part of their learning and their training. Uh, We can capitalize on that, given the fact that hospitals are seeing 
small or lower or, or reduced loads of patient uh, patients and because of the you know the uh, attrition and the number of uh, faculty so i think this if we become more creative and more innovative in how we are conducting our education and training programs then there are opportunities to reap fruits from Right. I mean, there, yeah, there's a lot of uh, clinics that, that the universities like UB and LAU and, and others are, are spearheading in, in the different communities. Uh, and there's uncertainty, there's a lot of need, I think, in these communities and Lebanon, especially uh, right now. So, uh, any final pieces of wisdom? Uh, final words of wisdom for trainees is uh, just really pursue your passion. Um, uh, you mentioned that some people are going in with the hopes of opportunities in a certain specialty in a certain country. When I went into emergency medicine, it didn't exist as a, as a specialty in Lebanon. And I actually was hesitating um, until one faculty at Hopkins when I was a med student said, just, just do what you like and it'll sort itself out. And, and really, if you're passionate and you enjoy something, you will find a path, I think. I truly believe that. So um, just uh, chase your passion and, and then the rest will, will navigate through the rest and it'll, it'll work out. Um, yeah, so I think two things. Uh, I, I, again, the medical students, at least this, uh, this is the, uh, these are the people I uh, inter interact with the most more than resident trainees. So what I tell them, and uh, especially that they have had gone through the worst of times ever, uh, that since they've managed to make it despite everything. So uh, they, they have this experience despite how harsh it was, it made them even tougher than they could have realized. And they also realized that they can push themselves even farther than they thought. So that's one very bright side of it. And draw, they sh should draw on their resources, local or international. And uh, eventually they should also, uh, as much as possible, to reflect on what has happened over the past couple of years and benefit from that to develop their characters and uh, to, to enrich the programs that they join. All right, yeah. yeah thanks, thanks to both of you today for, for this podcast. I think I hope people find it interesting. And uh, I think, I mean, I can summarize that what we're saying is follow your passion, uh, negotiate effectively, uh, and don't, don't, be, don't be afraid to get into positions of uh, leadership. And hopefully the Lebanese powers that be will listen to this and improve the situation so things will get better for everyone in Lebanon. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Thanks thank you, Khalil. It was a pleasure.